Who says the Bible has to be boring? On the contrary, the Bible is the most thrilling book in the world. It's the only book with an invitation to join the very narrative you are reading. My goal is to be like your time-traveling tour guide, taking you into an exploration of scripture in search of precious treasure. Timeless, life-giving truths that inform us of who God is, who we are, and how the story of everything really is His story. I invite you to join me as we learn to read the story, trust the story, and live the story, because there's no greater adventure than knowing the God of the Bible. I am Brayden Brookshire, and this is Adventures in Theology. Last week, we ended with the uh, verse 14, how those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons and daughters of God. So this defining characteristic and what we brought into, and that's why it's going to be really important for tonight, is that this is like new Exodus imagery. And as a reminder for what that means, basically it's not uncommon for the New Testament when it's talking about your salvation to be talking about in such a way that takes that old paradigm of salvation from the Exodus in the Old Testament, but then like makes it this new radical way that God has worked that is, could be described as a new exodus, but a final and greater exodus. So if God's salvation was worked through God's people um, at the first exodus when God saved them from Pharaoh and from Egypt and stuff, well, this new exodus is, wow, then Jesus has saved us from sin and of death and is taking us to a new and greater promised land. So all that kind of stuff have been themes and stuff we've been talking about. And these verses here, I feel like, are ways that become a lot more clear in how Paul has been drawing those themes together. Let's, let's read tonight's passage in its totality. That might be helpful. And then we're going to walk through, as we always do, kind of verse by verse, right? And please do, speak up. Uh, so you can just read along with me on right here. But Starting verse 17. So this is Romans 8, 17 through 25. And since we are children, we are also heirs. Indeed, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we also will be glorified with him. For I calculate that the sufferings of the present appointed time are not worthy of comparison to the coming glory to be revealed for us. For the eager expectation of the creation is enthusiastically anticipating the unveiling of God's sons and daughters. For the creation was subjected to futility, not voluntarily, but through the one who subjected it in hope because the creation itself will be liberated from its slavery to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. Since we know that the entire creation groans together, even suffering birth pains until now, and not only creation, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan inwardly as we enthusiastically anticipate the full benefits of adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. But... Hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we enthusiastically anticipate it through patient fortitude. All right. It's a lot. Lots to unpack. And uh, like I already kind of teased up a little bit, there's, I feel like, a lot more new Exodus kind of language and imagery going on here. So let's go back to verse 17 and just walk on through and stop me where we need to. So I'll just read verse 17 one more time. And since we are children, we are also heirs, indeed heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we will also be glorified with him. If I had to title tonight's like conversation, it's on your paper, but I would title it Heirs of a New World, and I think that'll come into greater focus as we talk about this. 
So basically, Paul's reinstating the fact that his audience, so those who are reading this, are indeed children of God, uh, which was firmly laid out in the previous few verses, of course, like that a huge benefit of being redeemed by Christ is that you become a child of God. He adopts you as his own. One of those cool facts we talked about last week with adoption is that when you are adopted in this ancient context, all your debts were forgiven. So you don't come into the new family with any baggage. Praise God. Now apply that to a really a good, good father like the Heavenly Father who, who when he takes you into his family, all debts are canceled. All debts are canceled. It's so easy for us to like forget that. Like when you come into God's family, and as you now, in this case, for many of you, stand in the status of being in God's family, all debts are canceled. Which again, ties right back to Romans 8.1. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So adoption is another way of serving that metaphor. Uh, so adopted into his family as sons and daughters, which obviously leads so well into this verse because what is true of children, and we even carry this around in our culture too, the idea of being an heir. An heir. You have an inheritance, right? And so Paul is, and that's what that word means, you know, to be an heir is to have an inheritance. Uh, but Paul's not satisfied with leaving it like this. Um, notice how he doesn't just say like heirs with, I don't know, fill in the blank. He, he he calls heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Now, I challenge you, what other higher form of inheritance can there be than being an heir of the creator of the universe? Right? Like, just try to rack your brain. You're not going to succeed. So, setting you up for failure right there. But no, there's no such thing as a higher inheritance than being an heir of God and co-heir with Christ. Like, Again, these are the kind of things in Scripture we read over, we gloss over, the lullaby effect takes over. I've read that verse before I've heard it. You start to tune out, and you miss out on all those things of thinking about that, what that means to be an heir of God. So to kind of tie into biblical context, this word for inheritance, uh, kleronomia, this is often used in the Old Testament of referring to the, the promised land that God was giving his people. Now remember, Paul, as a, uh, a, a man who grow, grew up really entrenched in his Hebrew Bible, would, would not be abandoning the way he thought about some of these words that he's deploying into his text. And so when he's bringing up this idea of inheritance, he's no doubt having some of these ideas there too. But he's obviously like bringing it to a new, new level. So if in the Old Testament, often Kleronomian inheritance had to do with that promised land, well, I think this is what he's hinting at here too. You think about the major storyline Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Well, it's a lot of material building up to them standing at the brink of entering the promised land. That's where Deuteronomy ends with this giant locker room speech of Moses handing off the torch to Joshua and saying, get ready. You guys are gonna have to be faithful. Here's blessings if you obey God, curses if you don't, but you're on the brink of entering the promised land. It's all building up to the promised land. And, and so I think in a similar, because that was their inheritance, right? And so in a sim similar sense, I think Paul is alluding to that as Christians. He's like, hey, you're on the brink of the new promised land. Let me just remind you of what you are heirs to um, as well. Yeah, notice too, uh, something that I thought, thought about, and I would, I'd love to hear what you think about this. But typically with an heir, if you are an heir of something, you don't get handed that inheritance, whatever it is, until that person dies. Now, uh, interestingly, since God does not ever 
die. Uh, not only his thing. I mean, obviously Christ in his, in his incarnation and all that died, etc. But like, okay, think more generally here. What is this metaphor communicating then? Uh, what do you think is going on then since God does not pass away and pass on a property inheritance? What, what's more going on here? It seems to be communicating something about the, it's more than the property, if you will. It's more than a location. It's more than inheritance in that sort of regard. I, this doesn't sound super obvious, but it's, I guess worth saying that the inheritance must also be relational. You know, so like in other words, it describes a position of privilege as having been like a result of being in God's family as a son and a daughter. And so while the inheritance language originally meant something like a simple possession of land, or in the case of the Israelites, the promised land, it later came to mean uh, like the secure possession like that the Messiah would win for his people. And in this case, that's what it is. It's, it's almost the symbol of like all the messianic blessings that are now given over to God's people. Obviously, both the now and the not yet, right? These are the terms we keep using the past several weeks and we'll keep using. There are blessings that are now yours, now, um, as a Christian, that you, and privileges and uh, blessings that you get access to right now as being a Christian. And then there's things that are just not yet. And I think the majority of these things in this passage that we're talking about tonight are painting that hope of what's the not yet. And that's why, as we even read at the beginning, the part where he's saying, well, what is hope? If, it, if you completely saw hope, uh, then it wouldn't be hope. You, you don't hope for something you already have. So there's an element of not yet as well to this inheritance. And since, and that's the key word, and since we are children, but in the NIV it says, if, and since. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah okay. And if sounds like it's conditioned. No, I'm glad we bring that up. Okay, <laughs> so uh, in Greek, there's three different kinds of, I'm going to totally nerd out on you. Just no, 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 real quick. But th this is good kind of questions because, as a Greek prof, I love to talk about these things. Uh, there's three different kinds of conditional clauses in Greek, and so uh, this one is begin with uh, what is known. Uh, What's well, the first class conditional clause? And so it uses this particle pronounced a, so epsilon yoda. And when this is basically when this Greek construction is put there, it is signaling to the reader as a first class condition that it is saying if, but it is a true statement. It's like you say, hey, if, if you told someone, like let's say your spouse, if you love me, let's go out to dinner together. But you're saying if, not because you have some doubt, but you're putting it up there as an assumption of that is obviously true. First class conditions work that way. Second class conditions are posed a little bit of doubt. And third class conditions are uh, like, it is doubtful. Like, I'm putting it out there and it's probably not true. First class conditions are posed to be true. So in my translation, which I'm glad actually you asked, I wanted to bring it out and show so there's no ambiguity. Because in Greek, there's no ambiguity. So translating as if is a good translation because that's what that word can also mean, if or since. But putting it that way, rendering it that way to an English reader who doesn't know, like, so wait, well, if, what do you mean if? It's... Too much ambiguity for me when in Greek it's super clear that this is a first class condition. It's assuming to be true still. It's still like, a, I would say this is not problematic. This is like, hey, okay, you know what's true of us? We're children of God, okay? Uh, we are heirs to God's kingdom. Awesome. What's part of your role in that? We have to like join ourselves to Christ. And that sometimes that what that means is that there's going to be suffering, hardship. Like we know that. I want to say it this way. I think this is one of the most important things. No, this is, this is great, Bruce. I'm really glad you brought this stuff up. For us as Christians, 
suffering is viewed in the New Testament, especially in this passage, as like a rite of passage. Suffering is a rite of passage. And so what Paul is doing is he gives a really cool kind of dignity to suffering that other worldviews do not have for it. Let me give a good example. In Buddhism, the whole goal of Buddhism is to detach, uh, to relieve yourself from suffering by detaching yourself from desire. Desire is the mechanism that is causing suffering in your life. So remove desire and you're going to suffer well, less. And hopefully the goal is to not suffer at all. Okay, interesting. Uh, obviously in other religions, that there's that everyone has to answer kind of like the question of theodicy of suffering, right? And there's, there's ways, and we can t- this would go a hundred different directions tonight of how we talk about suffering uh, and apologetics for that. We can get there at some point. But the point I'm trying to make with this specifically is this, that Paul doesn't see suffering as something that is a knock against God or the character of God. He sees it as an outworking of the new world and the like new creation coming to birth. And that's why even in this passage, getting ahead of ourselves, but why not? In this whole pericope, this whole passage, sorry, uh, he uses the example of birth pangs. So he uses the example of a woman giving labor. That like the existence, like God bringing the new creation into existence is like labor, where there's immense pain, but there's great joy at the end of that. So you all have been referencing things that like when we were talking about in First Peter 1 about being refined like gold, like you brought up, Bruce. But one thing we mentioned in that study, I remembered it so clearly, like how we talked about how suffering will either harden your heart or will tenderize it. Yeah. And that's exactly what you're mentioning and alluding to. And it's so true how like God uses suffering to like soften your heart so that he can do some incredible work and reveal himself to you. As First Peter laid it out, suffering and then glory. There's like this pathway because it's models what our Savior was. That's how it goes. And so when I say that suffering is like a rite of passage, Paul's kind of like saying that, like, expect that, like, in a sense. But not in a way that you, like, like you drop your shoulders and you're like, we're going to suffer in life and all that. There's some dignity to it. There's, there's something greater to it. There's something more to it. And uh, some of you have always explained some of how that seems to be turning out. And it's different because in Paul's Greco-Roman context, the gods, as it were, when God, the gods were causing suffering, it was completely like capricious and it was so like, it was meaningless to say, actually, that's the best way of saying it. Suffering for them was meaningless. But what Paul does, and especially for Gentiles who were coming out of like Roman, Greco-Roman religion, to hear that suffering was meaningful, not meaningless, man, that's, that's amazing. That's transformational of how you'd view that. And so that's what's going on there. And so he gives it that glo- uh, dignity, and then obviously in other passages it fleshed it out. But he also gives it the dignity because he says that this is just part of the journey. So if we equate this back to the new Exodus stuff, well, in the original Exodus journey, going through the wilderness to the promised land, there were struggles. I mean, you have the whole book of Numbers, <laughs> which is them going, and, and, and there's quite a few trials and afflictions and things, and things that they had to even grow through. Not just go through, but grow through. And that's it, friends. It's a key thing in life. Not just to go through things, but to grow through them. Because, guys, sometimes we just miss it. We go through things, and uh, Sabrina, you kind of mentioned this. We kind of go like, why God? Why this? And we are missing the growth opportunities of that. To connect it one more place, kind of, again, the tangent is like when you go to Philippians 1. Love that passage in Philippians 1 where Paul is literally like debating whether it's better for him to like live or die. Basically, he's facing the uh, 
impending death that was coming his way to be a martyr. It was going to happen. He was just, is it sooner or later, is what he's basically talking about. He's like, I really debate what's better. Like, for you guys, it's better uh, for ministry. But to depart and be with Christ, man, that's far better. To live as Christ, to die as gain. You can't stop someone that has that mentality. What are you going to do? Tell them, like, okay, stop. Uh, like, all right, um, you can keep preaching Jesus. Uh, don't keep preaching Jesus, but we'll let you live. Not to live as Christ. I'm going to keep preaching Jesus. Like, all right, fine. Then we're going to have to kill you. All right, to die is gain. You can't. You can't beat that. Yeah. You can't beat that. Dude. You have no power. Honestly, I think Philippians chapter one is the recipe on how to become invincible. Because, like, seriously, when you get that, because what did Paul grasp about that? Like, when he saw that to be with Jesus is better than life itself. Nothing can be taken from you then. You can only bestow on him, like, basically the crown of eternal life at that point. You can only, only just basically seal that faith. Hey, cool. Then, like, I get to now know when I'm going to go see Jesus. Yes. It's incredible. <laughs> when John and Peter were, yeah. like, they told them, stop, or we're going to beat you, and then they beat them. Yeah. And then they left. And started preaching right when they walked out. Yeah. It's like, what? They started preaching right when John and Peter gonna, walked out. What are they going to do? And they were rejoicing. But yeah. this was key language. I'm paraphrasing it, but I know it's in there in Acts chapter 4. They were rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer with Christ. Right. Wait, to suffer with Christ, that's what we see here. I guess that's part of my point. That like This is consistent in the New Testament, whether you're talking Paul, Peter, whoever. That, like This idea that they saw it as this rite of passage on the way to glorification, suffering is part of the journey. And I think it's easy, like, I guess, at this very second, I feel okay with that. <laughs> and then, you know, you walk through suffering, and it's hard. So please hear my heart, for, especially for those of you guys who have been with me a long time. Uh, obviously, we are not glorifying suffering. We are honoring what suffering leads to, glorification, but we're not glorifying suffering. That's an important distinction. We're not downplaying or minimizing the hardship that yeah, comes with suffering. suffering. Yeah, you don't seek it out. Recognizing that it's, it's really God, one of God's tools to shape there you. There we go. It's one of God's tools to shape you. Isn't yes. It? Yeah. Suffering <laughs> produces perse perseverance. Yeah. Yeah, perseverance produces character. Character produces. So Romans 5, 1 through 5, brother. You're right on. But how does Romans 5, 1 through 5 conclude with it in verse 5? For the love of God has been poured out into our hearts. Again, friends, how cool is it that like any of those key passages that you can build a theology of suffering around, you get these incredible either promises of either, okay, it's going to be so much greater, or something like the love of God being tangibly present within that. Like, Sabrina, your story is incredible in so many ways, and it's actually quite the night that you come in to, to meet you, for example. But <laughs> suffering, rite of passage, in my notes. <laughs> but like, because so cool that you saw that as a way that God was drawing you to himself. Yeah. That was just, that's, at the end of all, that's the main thing that should come out of it, right? Kind of a fun fact in this passage that Paul's choice of verb to suffer with, uh, I hope maybe you can hear the similarity, sum pasco, sum pasco. Well, there's the paschal lamb, right? So the Passover lamb. So this is a related word. Uh, to that. So when you talk about the Passover lamb, which obviously Jesus died at Passover, and in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul celebrates that Christ, our Paschal lamb, has been sacrificed, and he's talking about how we've been redeemed. So Paul uses that word, sum pasco, to make the point that it's almost like to suffer with Christ is to participate in the Passover. 
And obviously, if at Christ's Passover, obviously what happened at the cross and everything, suffering led to the victory over sin and death, then in a sense, our suffering is kind of rehearsing that story too. That through our suffering, we will come out victorious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that, and that, that's kind of the ironic thing also when Christians were preaching in the first century. What was a hang-up for Jews was that the Messiah they saw would be a conqueror. And what was a hang-up for the Greeks was that, wait a second, you're saying, you're like heralding your Messiah as the one who died on a cross. Wait a second, that's like humiliating. That's not, that's not victory. And that's the thing is, Christianity poses victory through the very means of death. Like, that's how Christ saves us. We forget that so easily, that he saves us, saves us via the means of death. So Paul has already asserted that, you know, that suffering is obviously on the path to glory. So I guess there's an underlying question here of like, is the glory at the end of this path worth the trouble to be experienced along the way? So if Paul is like using some rhetoric right here, that's kind of the underlying question. Okay, we're going to suffer and then we're going to experience glorification. The question is, is this, is this glory really going to be worth it when you weigh it next to the suffering? And so Paul, he uses language in verse 18. I guess it's worth reading this again. Verse 18, For I calculate that the sufferings of the present appointed time are not worthy of comparison to the coming glory to be revealed to us. So he's using this mathematical language right here. It's like you put two things on a scale side by side to observe which one held more. And obviously in their day and age, they literally had like a thing, like a little mechanism, right? That you would stand and you'd have those two things. And depending on which one weighed more, one would go up, one would go down. So he's trying to say, like, which one is heavier? Like this one outweighs, far outweighs. It's not even worth comparison. So he basically says it breaks the scale. Like, the glory to be real to us is going to break the scale in comparison to the suffering that we go through now. Again, not to minimize what we're going through right now, but to elevate the very like, thing you are being invited into, the relationship with God and the inheritance that comes with that relationship, that privilege and position of being in relationship to him, like will far outweigh. I, I, you often hear people when they're wrestling with suffering, and obviously as a pastor, I, I hear these conversations often, and nor do I go about it trying to tell them, well, the suffering, uh, the glory is going to be much better. It's not the time. But you hear people say something like this. Man, I have some words for God when I go meet him. He's got some explaining to do why I had to walk through that. I get the sentiment. I totally do. Like I said, I don't correct people in those moments. Not the time. Hint, okay? If you're in those conversations, it's not the time to correct them. But do you see kind of the issue there? What Paul would say is like, actually, you won't have, you will not have words for God. You won't have to say to God, like, you have some answers for me. You have some explaining to do. It's going to far outweigh. Like, it's almost like you're going to, like, forget completely what that suffering felt like. It, this is a poor analogy, but follow me here. It's starting to become cooler, right? San Diego version of cooler, right? Uh, so so uh, at nighttime, you actually need a blanket now, which is really nice. I like to be cozy, okay? I, I, love, I love fall, even San Diego's version of fall. I love to be cozy and just snuggle up, blanket, yes, and a good book, all that stuff, right? A good glass of wine, all that good stuff. But no, point being, uh, it's like the other night I was at telling Ariana, I was like, man, I almost forgot. Like I remember a few months ago when it was so hot at night 
and we don't have AC in our unit. It was so hot at night that we had no blankets and like, we're just miserable of how hot it was. I'm like, I can't even like remember what that, I remembered feeling that way, but I don't remember feeling that way. You get what I'm saying? I remember the memory of feeling uncomfortable, but I can't like rehearse that memory. So I'm like, oh, I just remember that it felt uncomfortable. Could it be something like that? Like the, obviously we're not gonna have like amnesia and like forget those things. Obviously too, we'll have a greater perspective of those things. You know, when, and also when, when he uses this language of glory too, like I think we have to keep in mind like biblical theology, like in the way the Bible typically talks about the glory of God or like glorification, it's, it's God's like manifest presence. Like that is what glory ultimately is talking about is the revelation of God himself. And so the glory to be revealed to us is God. Like it's press on. Let's see here, I'm gonna have to pass that for right now. Okay, Romans 8, 19, we'll keep looking at this because I wanna get us out here on time as always. <laughs> it's always the goal. Uh, verse 19, for the eager expectation of the creation is enthusiastically anticipating the unveiling of God's sons and daughters. Now, this obviously is introducing us, the readers, to the cosmic perspective of this glorious redemption. I want you to notice something, too, that what creation is waiting for, for the unveiling of God's sons and daughters. Now, we typically think of it all as like, oh, man, creation is just waiting for God, God to do something. But notice how there's almost like this intertwining of our glorious destiny and creation's glorious destiny. That when we, when God, through the new creation, right, when God has us step into that glorious destiny as the full manifest way of us being his sons and daughters, creation's going to experience the benefits from that. So creation's eagerly awaiting for God to make us who we're becoming. Basically, the relational rules of God is revealed in Scripture. So, for example, God is Father. Everything like that reaches its elevated form in the new creation. So there's not going to be this, like we have a relationship with God right now, but let's, let's be honest, there's still the sense where it's a little bit veiled. That's just reality. Duh. Like, <laughs> we all know that. <laughs> Thank you, Braden. Like, no, but seriously, like, what's an unveiled manifest presence of God? relationship to look like. This, those are the kind of things where the qualities where all the metaphors and illustrations we could put there, we have to know, and I know you're agreeing with this, but like uh, fall short of that. But the, those are the shadowy pictures we get of it though. That like what it means to relate to God as Father. Like that we, we're the bride of Christ. Like all those metaphors, illustrations such to draw us to this grand cosmic picture of what that looks like. And so that's why I've used this terminology here before, but like when we talk about the new creation, we have to think about it as a resurrected cosmos. Like, it's the very resurrection power that will happen to our bodies, and that's alluded to in this verse, and it was alluded to in last week's verse, is also applied to all of creation. So creation itself will experience resurrection. So to get your imagination wondering, what does resurrected Hawaii look like? If Hawaii is under the curse of sin, Oh man, that's awesome. So no, so like that's the, the, the problem is though, some people have grown up with way too much medieval theology in their head of paintings and stuff like, okay, the goal is to go to heaven when you die and that's the end of the story. Now heaven's great, but it's not the end of the story or to say it kind of in a punny way, heaven's important, but it's not the end of the world. Why? Because God is gonna resurrect the world. So heaven, to depart right now, if you died right now, you would be with Christ right now. That is an absolute fact. 
But the journey of heaven and earth coming together as one is the biblical narrative. And so that's why he even describes using present tense verbs of how the future glory is coming. It's this weird, weird, awesome image of it's almost like a collision course is on its way. Heaven and earth are coming together. It's coming. It's coming. It's imminent. It's coming. It's not here yet, but it's coming. And so God's realm and our, our God's world and our world will become one. And that's why it's it's this beautiful marriage of like Christ and the church, but it's this beautiful marriage of heaven and earth. That's like summarizing big things all throughout the New Testament, of course. Uh, but yeah, and I think that's too sad to me when I just hear Christians have this strange image of eternity. It's just like, so we go to the place in the clouds and we sing worship songs. Now granted, if that was all there was, it'd still be glorious. I'm not downplaying whatever image people have in their head, but that's just not the biblical image. That's literally not the New Testament's vision. You won't find that. They don't paint the picture that, you know what, come follow Jesus and you'll go to heaven when you die. Like, that's the ultimate hope. Like, yeah, that's true. I get the sentiment, but yeah. So it's, it's so much bigger than that. And it's really exciting. And again, this is one of those passages that is dropping some hints to it here and there. Like, look at verse um, 20 and 21. For the creation was subjected to futility. So futility, think about something that's futile. It's decaying. It's corruptible. And that's what this word is meaning here. So that's why when you see something, it like thrives for a little bit, then it dies. That's not part of the world how it should be. Like even the creation you look at around you, as beautiful it is, on even the most beautiful sunset you see is still a broken sunset needing redemption. Even the most best food you taste is part of the fallen land. Do you see that? Do you get that? So creation is frustrated. It's and not on its own accord, but the one who's subjected it in hope. Because creation itself, and key into this, creation itself will be liberated from its slavery to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. Friends, creation will experience a new exodus. Is that liberation language? We've seen in Romans already quite a few times. You can find that same verb through and through. He's been using this verb, and now he's implying it to a creation. So that's why even creation around us, I just so often see, even at the most beautiful time that I'm admiring like creation, I'm like, ah, still broken. Wow, how crazy. As beautiful as it is, it's still broken. What will completely unhindered, resurrected, new exodus creation look like? Allow your imagination to go there, because that's part of God's plan. Like, don't hold back. That's so cool. So creation itself is awaiting its new exodus. So see how Paul just keeps broadening out the cosmic scale of this. Like, yes, you are going to be redeemed. In the last week's passage, we talked about the redemption of our bodies. The very one who lives in you is the Holy Spirit. He will bring new life to your bodies. He brings up resurrection again. You will be, just to be emphatic, you will be resurrected never to die again with a body that has more capabilities than you could probably imagine. But not just your bodies, the space that you're going to inhabit, it will be resurrected around you too. Creation will be liberated, and it will join into the glorious freedom of God's children. And all this obviously will be in the context of being with God in his presence, his glory coming and glorification. So that's why, since we know, verse 22, we know that the entire creation groans together, even in the suffering of birth pains. So labor until now. How cool is that? Creation is like in labor right now. It just wants so bad. Of course, this personification language going on here, but like creation wants so bad just to give birth to the new creation. But it's not ready yet. It takes time. Know that suffering language? That applies to creation too. 
labor is painful. Oh, yeah. I watched my wife go through it. She was such a boss. Oh, yeah. That labor pain, I will never be able to relate to in the same way as some of you who have gone through that. So you get to relate to this passage better than me. So thank you. <laughs> I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. Thank you. Yeah, so, yeah, wow, you're welcome. I tried. I tried. I 100% stand by everything I just said. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I'm trying to be selective here and what to talk about. This is crazy. Do you guys know how much every week, how many notes I don't get to say? It's awesome. That's why I need to write a book on this stuff. Yeah, no. If you were to, like, put together, like, your... If we're talking fancy football earlier here, Danny. If you were putting your fancy Bible list of passages on eschatology like you know of like okay what's our ultimate hope this would be Romans 8 would be one of those passages I put in there one because I think it even though it doesn't give a ton of details to it it sketches this really great vision of the now and the not yet so you are justified right now and remember how we talked in week one how that means getting the final verdict of the last day brought into the present that you get to know what that final rendering is even though we're not even there yet you get to know today what the final verdict is. And so there's a lot of this interplay of the future and the present going on in Romans 8. And that's part of the purpose of there. And so with this, this is a part where he's kind of focusing on the future a lot. He's telling them things like, hey, because guess what? We have to suffer with Christ before we're glorified. Okay, now let me tell you something. It far outweighs, it breaks the scale on how great that's going to be. So you know how we've been talking about, you know, the Holy Spirit lives in you. He's going to bring new life to your body. Well, guess what? That glorification of walking into the true sonship and daughtership of being with God means a full resurrection for you. But not just for you. You're going to be part of bringing resurrection power to the whole creation. Everything in creation is eagerly awaiting to experience this new exodus that you are already starting, not fully, but starting to take part of. Wow, how cool is that, guys? Like, that's what he's doing. He's like celebrating these kind of things and these truths of it. Having the first fruits of the Spirit, I think part of how that plays out is that when you have those desires to like walk with Jesus and to do it his way and, and to like one day be with him, like that, that's part of the first fruits of the Spirit. It's that anticipation. And that's why it keeps using that language, anticipation, enthusiastically anticipating. That's in the text for a reason. This life uh, is an enthusiastic anticipation. It's not the full final thing. And so that's why there's hardships in that too. There's hardships because... The benefits won for us on the cross aren't fully applied yet. They are partially applied, but to use the language of Ephesians 1, the down payment has been paid so you can trust the rest. Like, you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. So all that's true. Just So the not yet parts of our salvation are still guaranteed. Your life is an enthusiastic anticipation of something that is so much greater that even though you walk through some sufferings, you are on this new exodus journey that... Although you will be glorified one day, and that that glorification will be so outweighed than anything you walk through.